From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Is this week's snow a sign of things to come in the high country? Snowstradamus joins us with the outlook. Then, few people get as excited about ski season as John Dakin. Maybe I'm a real nerd. You know, I mean, some people live and die NFL football. I'm a ski racing freak. Now he's been inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame. I haven't had a job for the last 40 years. I had a passion. How he's elevated the story of snow sports through the World Alpine Ski Championships to the Olympics. Plus, we'll get a personal tour of the Colorado Snow Sports Museum, the ultimate tribute to what makes Colorado, Colorado. You will find something that will connect you and why you love the state of Colorado and why it's such a cool place to be. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado is off to a good start this season for skiing and other fun in the snow. To help you know what to expect and make the most of the snow, we're talking with Joel Gratz. He's the founding meteorologist of the website and newsletter, Open Snow. It's been a go-to resource for skiers and snowboarders in Colorado for more than a decade. Hi, Joel. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. How is the snow across the state right now? Well, it feels uh, really good when we look at the numbers, because we always need to look at the numbers. Uh, we're, we're plus or minus average snowpack uh, for this time of year on December 1st. So some areas of the state are a little below average. Uh, some mountains in the state are a little above average. Uh, but overall, we're, we're just right around average. So that's not a bad place to be as we head into uh, December. And that's good news because I've heard there's a drought well, there, there is, and, and there's been kind of a, a multi-year uh, drought, and every winter is, is different. But right now, across the entire West, uh, almost every other area across the West has more snow uh, than us as, and is well above 100% uh, of average snowpack. So hopefully, uh, this trend continue, continues. Uh, mm-hmm. We have no strong ability to forecast snow for the next four to five months, but Uh, If we can keep an average to even above average snowpack throughout the spring, uh, then we'll have a lot of water, hopefully, uh, to melt out and fill some of the reservoirs uh, heading into spring and summer. Well, I'm not a Colorado native, so the snow thing I still have to adjust to. So I'm just curious, is the timing of the snow different this year than, say, like previous years? Well, every year is different, uh, fortunately and unfortunately. No, no two years are, are usually identical. So nothing really surprises me anymore. Some years start out slow. Some years start out snowy. Uh, this year, again, we're kind of right on average. You know, last year, we had very little snow in a lot of the Colorado mountains heading into the holidays mm-hmm. uh, and then kind of had a holiday miracle where a bunch of snow happened in late December, which is useful because that's when a lot of people descend on Colorado uh, for holiday skiing. Uh, and it's great to have a lot of snow to open up a lot of terrain on the mountains. This year, we're already ahead of where we were last year. And so if we can keep getting a couple storms between now and the holidays, uh, most mountains should have most of their terrain available uh, by the time a lot of people get here for the last 10 days of December. 
Great lead into my next question. How much terrain is open at the ski resorts right now? Well, there's a high of 90% of terrain at Wolf Creek, which is in Southern Colorado. Uh, but the average for most mountains is somewhere in about the 10 to 30% uh, area. And part of that just represents early season and it takes the mountains a little bit of time to open some things up and get everything signed uh, and all the hazards marked. Uh, and part of that is just still a, a slightly lower snowpack. Uh, we need time for, for the snow to deepen. But the good news is there are some storms in the forecast, uh, which should help to deepen the snowpack and hopefully open a little bit more terrain over the next week or two. Should we expect snow again, say, tomorrow? Well, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so the next storm for the mountains, uh, the next snowstorm for the mountains, I should say, will arrive Thursday around midnight. It'll snow through early afternoon on Friday. Uh, most mountains will be in the 5 to 10 inch range with more snow farther west. So kind of away from Denver, uh, farther west, kind of Aspen, Crested Butte, Vail, Beaver Creek, Steamboat are the more favorite areas. But most areas should get uh, in that 5 to 10 inch range. The other story tomorrow on Friday Will be strong winds so we'll see wind gusts of 40 to 70 miles an hour in the mountains also over the plains and the cities around denver and up and down the front range uh so in the mountains it'll be snow and wind in the front range here in the big cities it'll mostly just be a wind event but those are very strong winds so i could see uh, some travel issues especially through the mountains because it's often the combination of snow and strong winds that creates low visibility and sometimes road closures I must say you have the coolest nickname. Outside Magazine calls you Snowstradamus. So do you have any predictions to share with us about what the winter will bring to Colorado? Well, the, this Snowstradamus tries to focus on about the next 10 days or so, <laughs> uh, because that, that that's roughly the time period where we have some actual skill in the forecast. Beyond 10 days, uh, at times there is the ability uh, to say some, some things about the weather, but but often it's hard to make a three or four month prediction. What I will say for this winter, it's a La Nina winter, which means that ocean water temperatures in the Central Pacific Ocean are colder than average. That changes storm tracks in a somewhat, somewhat repeatable way. Unfortunately, though, for us here in Colorado, that change in the storm tracks is not uh, very predictable. And so of the last moderate to strong La Ninas that we've had over the last century, it's almost been 50-50 whether those La Nina seasons have been above or below average with just a slight uh, tendency to being above average snowfall. So uh, as people like to joke with me, you're telling me there's a chance for above average snow? Yes, there is. But uh, it, it's still not a strong predictor of what we'll see this, this winter. So I'll focus on the next 10 days and uh, we'll go from there. In our final few seconds, uh, I have to ask, are avalanches a concern at all this year? Uh, yeah, they're always a concern if you're in the backcountry of Colorado. The experts are the Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Uh, so before you head out in the backcountry, number one, uh, get educated, take classes. We all do it. Uh, number two, have the right gear, which they'll talk about in the classes. And number three, check in with Colorado Avalanche Information Center. Uh, they have forecasts every day that are updated for areas across the state. Uh, and it'll help keep you knowledgeable and safe in the backcountry. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. Joe Gratz is the founding meteorologist at Open Snow. The website and newsletter are dedicated to helping skiers and snowboarders find the best powder in Colorado and beyond. Speaking of snow, a new study has found that Colorado ranks number one in the country for snow activities. The research is based on an analysis of federal economic data 
It found that the outdoor recreation economy in Colorado accounted for $11.6 billion last year. Yes, billion with a B. The voter-based Outdoor Industry Association says the findings represent the highest recorded number of new and returning outdoor recreation participants ever. Now, I spoke with Kelly Davis, the association's director of research, and she says the findings show the industry has rebounded from pandemic setbacks. So what do you feel like this study says about Colorado? They built the best ski resorts. Sorry, Utah. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a great destination place. Everybody thinks about Colorado and skiing. And yeah, you know, the, the, you can choose different places. You can choose to go to Wyoming or Montana or Idaho or anywhere down the line of the Rockies. But Colorado is special, and Colorado has 32 premier ski resorts. I mean, wow. when you think about skiing, you're talking about Vail, you're talking about Aspen. Those are two of the, the resorts that come to mind right away. And and thank God for Colorado, you had the best you had the best PR department in John Denver ever. Oh <laughs> gosh, I think that's we all we, we all like close our eyes and 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 hear you know Rocky Mountain High when we're thinking about outdoor. And it's a great place to ski. So downhill skiing is a is an amazing activity. I'm talking about snowboarding and skiing because I do both. Snowboarders don't don't pick on me. Um, it is just a really great place to go because the you know you can you can choose from any kind of terrain from beginner to I mean just absolute expert in Colorado. Um, you can experience right the Rocky Mountains in sort of a, this really sort of fundamental way because this is this is where you go to get that archetype experience of the Rocky Mountains you know where you're going to go skiing and it's it's just you know it's sort of a, it's part PR and part just having the product available for the consumer um and good product not to mention backcountry so backcountry's taken off and and Colorado actually has one ski area that focuses specifically on backcountry skiing but we're talking about 2 million people last season got out in the backcountry. And whether that meant like skinning up and, and skiing down or doing serious ski touring hut to hut or just, you know, sessioning out in the woods, you know, build a jump, build a bonfire, have a party, which is awesome. Um, a lot of people are in the backcountry as well. So you've got a huge amount of, of participation in Colorado. You've got the facilities to manage that and to keep up that archetype of like just the the absolute home of skiing, it's it's an amazing place and it creates a lot of jobs and a lot of opportunity and a lot of economic impact for Colorado. That was Kelly Davis, Director of Research for the Voter-Based Outdoor Industry Association. A new study ranks Colorado number one in the country in terms of revenue generated by the snow sports industry in 2021. The same analysis also concluded that Colorado ranked in the top 10 last year for climbing, hiking, camping, and bicycling. When we come back, a passion for ski racing leads to the Hall of Fame. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I don't speak Spanish. When I go um, to the panderia to get snacks, they speak to me in, in Spanish. In the first season of Quien Are We, you heard from a whole lot of people about their passions, relationships. I was so happy. I was so impressed with you. And, you and maybe you heard yourself in their stories. Oh, and then I'm not even going to lie to you. One time me and Sam were like, well, you know, let's break out the huevo. Let's maybe somebody gave him evil eyes. The first season of Quien Are We, everywhere you listen. John Dakin says he hasn't had a job in more than 40 years. 
Instead, he's had a passion project, and that passion has led to the highest award in Colorado snow sports. Dakin was inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Museum Hall of Fame this year. I went to Vail to talk with him about the honor and his career. Still a little surreal. I, every time I come into the museum, I have to run over and make sure that my name's still up on the wall. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, I never thought about as an end result to a career. I mean, it's, uh, it's certainly a great honor uh, to be recognized for what I was able to accomplish. But, um, you know, as with anything else, there's a tremendous uh, amount of people that also deserve part of that award for helping me and providing me the opportunities that I had to uh, to really make a contribution, hopefully a, a significant one to the sport of skiing and snowboarding throughout Colorado and throughout the world. Your career is so decorated, just a lot of diversity, but it all kind of comes together and um, I guess there's like a tie that binds your career. Uh, for those who don't know your background, explain what your career has been, nearly 50 years of work. Well, for all of the uh, high school seniors that are listening to this, uh, my advice to you heading off to college is have a plan. Because <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> and so four years later, I ended up with a Russian history degree, which probably, you know, is about as useful now as it was then. <laughs> um, so I was fortunate enough while I was at the University of Colorado getting my Russian history degree to become involved with the, the CU Ski Club. And by chance, we shared the same offices with Bill Marolt who was the head coach of the University of Colorado ski team. Mm. And so I got to know Bill and uh, the ski team and the ski club did a number of different events in conjunction with each other. The ski club helped at the races. So, you know, when I graduated and, um, and found out that uh, there was not a big rush for Russian history um, majors, I uh, worked for a couple of years and then had a chance to meet up with Bill again and uh, said that I had decided to go back to school to get my journalism degree. And Bill said, okay, I'll make you a deal. Because the sports information department at the university, you know, really isn't paying attention to the ski team, or at least the attention I think should be paid to the ski team, because they were winning national championships and the football team was going three and eight. Uh, every year. And so I said, all right. And he goes, you know, I'll pay for your tuition, but you have to become the sports information director for the CU ski team. And I said, you got it. <laughs> Sounds like a good deal. <laughs> good deal. So I, I was spent three years with the, uh, the CU ski team as their sports information director, traveling to the different races and putting together the media guides and keeping all the stats for the team. And uh, those three years were the final three years of uh, national championships for the, the, the CU ski team. Uh, they won eight in a row during that string. And uh, I was lucky enough to be there for the final three. I did a little reading on you and you are a longtime Ville local. And 
What I read was that you are known around the world as the first person to hold a chief of press position at three different World Alpine Ski Championship events. And in between those roles, you also served as Alpine press chief at the 2002 Olympics and the Alpine mixed zone coordinator at the 2010 Olympics. What do you remember about those moments? Salt Lake was amazing. I mean, I've, uh, I've been blessed to be in the Vail Valley and, and work for organizations like the Vail Valley Foundation that produces cultural, athletic, and educational events and programs. And they were the main organizing body for the 1989, the 1999, and the 2015 World Alpine Ski Championships, which is basically uh, the easiest way to describe what a World Championships is, is if you took all the alpine skiing events out of the Salt Lake Olympics, let's say, and you plopped them down in Vail, that's what you would have. So it really is the, the alpine the world championships because you're not competing with an Olympics with bobsled or luge or cross country skiing or figure skating or short track. You know, it's just focused. The the entire event is focused on alpine ski racing. Really what I get from reading about you and your career is that you are known for telling the story of Colorado snow sports and bringing it out to the world. I think that I've been fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. Um, You know, I think, I was a, a ski racing fan, super fan, before you know any of the, the information side of things, the media side of things took hold. And so, as I said in my induction speech, I haven't had a job for the last 40 years. I had a passion, and I was fortunate enough to be able to turn that passion into a, a 30 plus year career. You know, whether it was with the CU ski team, whether it was with the Vail Valley Foundation and World Championships or the Salt Lake and Vancouver Olympics or even was able to help introduce the sport of mountain biking to the Olympics in Atlanta. So I've had a lot of opportunities to tell the story. And it's a story that, especially from a ski racing perspective, that is truly near and dear to my heart. As I say, I was a fan before I was anything else. And that's always, you know, stayed with me. I mean, I still get excited, you know, uh, with Michaela Schifrin wins or, (laughs) you know, back in the glory days, some of the glory days of the U.S. ski team, when I was uh, their information director with Phil Mayer winning the overall World Cup title along with Tamara McKinney and uh, some of the great uh, names from that era, Kristen Cooper and Cindy Nelson, and, you know, names that people know when the U.S. ski team really planted its, its flag and said, you know, we are here and we are going to be competitive. I want to talk about that passion. What is the passion for you? Good question. Um, just the only way I can explain it is, is I was a huge fan, you know, and, and to have uh, the ability both the opportunity to become involved and to stay involved, but also the ability to, to translate that excitement that I had for ski racing. And it, didn't, it wasn't just focused on the U.S. team. I have some great friends, great relationships with international athletes that you know, come here every year for the Birds of Prey World Cup races that I've known from the Olympics, from World Cup, from World Championships, the Bell Valley Foundation did a lot of traveling and lobbying 
to get these three world championships. And part of that really involved going to a lot of the major events. And, you know, just by being around, you get to know the officials and the athletes. And, and so I have some very good friends that are Austrian and Swiss and German. And, you know, it, it was not just entirely focused on the U.S. And, you know, of course, I'm partial, but it was it was a passion for ski racing in general. Mm. It was just an exciting sport that it, there's nothing like it, you know, to be on downhill day, um, you know, when you, you can cut the tension with a knife and just being, being in the middle of it, being a part of it. I'm so fortunate mm. to have been able to, to live that uh, and not just watch it from the sidelines. So another facet of your career is that while with the U.S. Ski Team, you found your way into race announcing. Tell us a little bit about that era. I don't know how that started. Actually, <laughs> I do know. I, I've never planned on being an announcer. I never trained to be an announcer. I never thought I would be an announcer. And uh, when I was with the U.S. Ski Team, I was uh, we were headquartered in Park City, Utah. Mm-hmm. And the <laughs> Park City picked up a canceled World Cup race their first World Cup race. And so the whole town got involved and wanted to be part of the organizing committee. And, and, you know, we put everything together and they were looking to see who was uh, uh, candidates to be the race announcer for the the PA. So they decided, since I was the information director of the U.S. team, I probably knew more about the athletes both on the U.S. team and internationally than anybody else because if nothing else, I knew how to pronounce their names. <laughs> um, and so how I developed my style of announcing, all I can tell you is that I opened my mouth and let out whatever wanted to come out. Okay, you have to give us a little sampling of your style. I know that, I know you're not calling, you're not uh, commentating right now, but... I, I need to explain this then. Um, because, as I say, I, this was something that I never planned on doing. And I never gave it a whole lot of thought of how it should be done. It just was what felt right to me. And as I say, you know, I had that passion. I had that excitement for ski racing in general. And so... I got up there, not knowing what it was going to sound like. I had basics, you know, from my sports information background of, you know, things that needed to be communicated. And my goal was to try, it was to do enough research in advance to try and have something significant to say about everybody in the race. You know, not just, this is so-and-so from Salzburg, you know, and and then all of a sudden it would be dead silence for the duration of the run. So first racer gets in the gate and out it comes and it sounds more like a horse race than it does a skier. <laughs> um, you know, it was, it was fast. It was what I was feeling. This morning, Bodie said he needed to take a really aggressive line through here and be tight on the gates, which is exactly what he's doing. Whoa, spoke too soon. Miller way in the back seat and almost goes down. What a recovery. He was headed for a date with the fence. It may not always be pretty for Bodie Miller, but it's always fast. And you tried to add some flavor and um, excitement to it. I tried to develop a mindset where it was like, even though the people that were listening to it were seeing what was happening live, 
you know, on the big screen or, you know, when they got close to the bottom watching it, you know, in, in real time. But I wanted to create an atmosphere and fill it with information that if, assuming that everybody that was hearing it was on the radio. Mm, so you wanted to kind of be the eyes yeah. and ears. Right. Yes. One of the things that I'm kind of proud of, and my whole premise was that ski racing could be a spectator-friendly sport, that people could watch it and have fun and have it be a spectator sport as long as we made it fun and we made it familiar. And that's what you were trying to do yeah. with the announcing. Yeah. You go to a football game and somebody starts the wave. You don't have to tell people how they need to respond to that. What was the most fun part about uh, announcing? And also, what kind of excited you when watching the skiing? Maybe I'm a real nerd, but <laughs> I can, you know, I'll get up at five in the morning to watch, you know, to live stream races this weekend. It's just that I'm... You know, I mean, some people live and die NFL football. You know, I, I'm i a ski racing freak. And so it, it just was, it was like I was announcing for myself. You know, it, mm. and that was probably easy, an easy way to block out, you know, because I never looked down at the crowd. There could be one person in the bleachers, there could be 100,000, and I wouldn't know. You have been inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame, and you are widely credited with telling the story of Colorado snow sports. So in your own words, what is the story of Colorado snow sports? The story of Colorado skiing is, is about vision. It's about perseverance. It's about a can-do attitude that came from the 10th Mountain Division. It's about people in love and valuing the outdoors and that lifestyle. It's people that were willing to take a chance with no guaranteed return. It's about a close-knit family of really good folks that took a small little sport and made it into a major industry. And it's, it's about my family. John Dakin, how do you want to be remembered? He's a good guy. Somebody that cared. Somebody that did things for the right reason. You know, he's a good guy. Thank you so much. Thanks. John Dakin. He was inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Museum Hall of Fame in August. Our thanks to the museum for that audio of John's race calling. When we come back, we'll take you on a tour of the museum that pays tribute to Colorado's bread and butter, winter snow sports. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. 
Before the break, we talked with Colorado Snow Sports Museum Hall of Fame inductee John Dakin, who for decades was charged with telling the story of Colorado snow sports. We met at the Colorado Snow Sports Museum in Vail. And of course, I could not pass through that cute and quaint museum without squeezing in a quick tour. The museum's executive director, Jennifer Mason, was happy to show me around. And I must say this gym, located just steps away from Vail's Welcome Center, is filled with all sorts of fun and interesting memorabilia. So we don't just represent Vail and Vail's history. We have all the resorts in Colorado, past and present, that are in this museum. And you can't really talk about Colorado snow sports without talking about the 10th Mountain Division. We have right now the largest display of 10th Mountain artifacts for the public to view. Wow. So the Denver Public Library and History of Colorado both have many, many more artifacts. But if you want to come and actually visualize them and see them, this is where you need to come because we have the largest display for the public right now. So what they did was they created 62 ski areas alone in the state of Colorado. Wow. We estimate that about 90% of all ski areas in the United States have a tie back to 10th Mountain Division because it's not just here in the state of Colorado. It's Vermont. It's Utah. It's Oregon. It's Washington. It's California. Tahoe. It's everywhere. But they also weren't just just snow sports guys, like skiing guys. They also became leaders in, um, they created Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School and Outward Bound. So they really were the outdoor industries we know it today. If you're a climber, Paul Petzl and all the climbing gear, he was a 10th Mountain Division soldier. And also, um, it's even gone into sports. Um, Bill Bowerman from Nike, co-founder of Nike, was a 10th Mountain Division soldier and created the Waffle Soul. Wow. Pretty incredible. And all these guys were all together for two and a half years, 20 minutes from Vail. And they were really kind of the think tank of all snow sports industry. And then when they came back post-World War II, they created the outdoor industry. So you can't talk about Colorado and outdoors and the, the snow sports industry. So we tell everybody to come and start at the uh, 10th Mountain exhibit. And it literally starts with how many Dole started the 10th Mountain. And it goes to their training at Camp Hale. And it goes around and their battle at Riva Ridge and what they uh, accomplished over in the Italian Alpenine. And then, of course, um, we have a lot of artifacts that continue and tell that story. I understand your mission is to celebrate Colorado snow sports by telling stories that educate and inspire others to seek adventure. So we don't want you just to come here and enjoy it and learn everything. We want you to then be inspired by what these guys did with the first descents, opening ski resorts, opening, you know, being a part of all sorts of different things. We wanted to then inspire you to go out and take your passion and possibly turn it into to a lifelong career. So we're here today, and it's a pretty nice crowd today. We have lots of people mingling. Can you tell us about where we're standing right now? Can you describe it for us? Yeah, so we are actually in our 10th Mountain exhibit, and it starts with kind of how Minnie Dole wrote letter after letter to the War Department, and then his whole recruitment campaign, and then it goes on to Camp Hale. And then of course we have all of the artifacts and everything that they wore. Wow, look at this. <laughs> I know they wore these amazing um, 
Every 10th Mountain Division soldier that I ever met had the honor of meeting. Always said he was cold because if you look at this, it's really made out of cotton. And, and she's referring to sort of a, a mannequin that's dressed in historic gear. Yeah, so this is the actual gear that they wore in World War II in 1941-42. They trained in it and then they did wear it into war. And it is a cotton canvas um you know, it just almost feels like like a jack, a light summer jacket. Yeah, I would wear today, and it's white on one side, and then it's like a lighter green on the other side because it is reversible. So in the winter they were camouflaged mm. snow, and then in the summer it was light green, so you would blend in with the mountainside at that point. And it's literally cotton canvas, like you would freeze in it today. And, yes. And uh, it's pretty incredible. And then, of course, you know, they have their, their famous rucksacks that they carried. And uh, the other really cool thing that we have are the skis. And then you can see they have the skins on the bottom because the soldiers used the skis to go up and down the mountain. So when they were going up the mountain, they put the skins on them. And it's an, it, at the, in 1945, 70, almost 80 years ago, they were actual animal skins. Today, we use synthetic materials that emulate the same as the skins, but that's how they're called skins. So that's how they would go up the mountain. And then when you got to the top, you took them off and then you ski down. Um, and you can even see they also painted their wooden um, ski poles white as well. Everything was, you know, camo. Wow. Camouflaged. Um, and of course, then we have, you know, all the, the their stoves and their tents and all the other artifacts that they, that they had. And also, that's got to be the coolest, like, uh, goggles <laughs> ever. I love that you bring up the goggles. So these goggles were actually, they were not army issued. If you look down below, so the goggles that we're looking at on the mannequin have like a very reflective lens through them and mm -hmm. because the soldier was like, these were not bright. These were not like sunglasses. And think of the Colorado sun. Yes. Reflecting off the snow. So he created his own um kind of goggle and we have that on display because it's fascinating um these guys truly were r&d they did a lot of research and design like the army would give them a backpack and then two weeks later they'd be like well could you make them like this and these guys had added buckles and pockets and done all this stuff and the army would absolutely change it for them because they were making things better they weren't just let they was that can-do attitude. They weren't just lying on their, like, oh, this is what I was given. They're like, nope, we're going to make it better. And the other really fascinating thing that I always love to point out is the stove, that camp stove. Wow. If anyone goes backpacking today, it almost looks exactly like that. Wow. So pretty innovative and pretty, pretty ahead of their time because that's pretty much what my backpack and camping stove looks like today. Mine might weigh a little bit less, but essentially it's the exact same thing. Pretty incredible. So they were really innovative and trendsetters. Yes, they really were. And that's, of course, when they came back post-World War II. That is why they were already doing all of this. That is why they all went into the industry. You know, they went on to create Ski Magazine. I mean, they just, they were the end-all, be-all of the ski industry in the beginning. So tell us about where we are now. So now we're, we're in the exhibit called Colorado Ski Resorts. And this is where we talk about all of the current Colorado resorts. We have this amazing, cool table that these kids were just on. 
this big screen giant table. Wow. And it has a map of the state of Colorado and then you click on your favorite resort. So you could click on um, if Monarch Mountain down near Gunnison is your favorite mountain, you can click on that. And then it tells you all the history of Monarch ski area and has present day and has all the trail maps that go back to the 1960s, their history along with video and timeline and photographs. Um, and Monarch actually goes back way into the uh, into the 1930s. Wow. My favorite thing is this, um, they have, we have all the old posters and lift tickets. And Monarch has this cool old lift ticket that was in the shape of a ski boot back in the 50s. Wow. You know, right now we have 38 current resorts. And then also there's this really cool feature on here there used to be, we have over 200 resorts that have come and gone in the state of Colorado. So we have two maps on here. And we, of course, do not have all 200 what they call lost resorts in Colorado. But we do have a handful. We have about, you know, 35 of the lost resorts. So you can learn about, like, everybody who drove the I-70 corridor when we were kids. We all remember there was a sign that said St. Mary's Glacier. St. Mary's Glacier was an actual ski resort from the 1930s until 1986 when it closed. Wow. And then, of course, because we are located in Bale, we do have what we call an exhibit called Bale's DNA. And it has the original gondola that Vale opened. Wow, look at this. On December 15, 1962. So this gondola is cut in half. It doesn't actually look that big because it's not. It was only held for people. And so you put your skis on the outside. And then on the outside, currently right now, in the ski holder on the gondola, everybody had head standards. Head standards were that black ski that everybody owned. And we actually have a very famous pair of head standards. Um, if you notice the name on that head standards, it does say Betty Ford. Oh, wow. I didn't Ford, notice the that. The 38th president of the United States spent a lot of time, him and him and Mrs. Ford spent a lot of time in Vail. There's, that's another whole segment we could talk about all day. Um, but we do have Mrs. Ford's skis. And these skis, Mrs. Ford was not a very tall woman. These skis are so long, and they have what they call Cubco bindings on them, which is so crazy because those are really hard to ski on. Um, and it just shows you, you never know what you're going to see when you come into the Colorado Snow Sports Museum. Wow. So as we walk along, now we see 100 years of ski fashion yes, and so function. This is actually my favorite exhibit in the museum. So it's 100 years of ski fashion. And it's this amazing six-minute video, and we hit it right on the dot. It starts at 1945, and it goes all the way to 2015. And it literally starts at the beginning of skiing, and then it goes down to modern day. And it's cool because you can watch the evolution of the equipment and the skis and the clothing and the goggles and... You know, and then all of a sudden you notice that people start wearing helmets. And you also have 2022 Beijing Olympic uniforms. This is, yes. Yeah, so currently, last year when the Beijing Olympics happened, we were fortunate enough to get the competition uniforms that the Olympians were going to wear. These uniforms were on display two weeks before opening ceremonies. Wow. So we actually saw the uniforms the competition uniforms that some of the athletes were going to wear even before they were distributed to the uh, athletes, which is pretty incredible. And it all has to do with these uniforms were given to the U.S. team by Spider. Spider is a Colorado-based company. And my favorite thing about this right now is there's this amazing letter 
on the inside of all the coats that were given to the athletes that says, congratulations on becoming a member of the U.S. Olympic team. When you wear this uniform, you are representing a nation, a team, and the athletes who have come before you. There's a legacy behind you and an endless opportunity in front of you. Wear this uniform with pride and know that you are not alone. We will be with you throughout your journey and cheering for you along the way. Make your dreams come true and create your own story. And what's so cool, as Jen pointed out, it's literally in the inside of the jacket. So you can, that, that athlete can look down and get inspiration instantly. Instantly. And that just, when I saw that, it gave me goosebumps. And how cool that I love that Spider wrote them like a note, like, like, a, like we're your cheerleader. And my favorite part is that like it literally says when you wear this uniform you're representing a nation so it really does show you the impact of sport and winter sport and what the olympics mean to our state and also to all of you know all of the u.s so now we're where what is this section now actually we can kind of skirt along and actually we will we're in our competition exhibit and these two exhibits one side of us has this amazing digital wall of information and it starts with the 1920s so the first olympic winter olympics happened in 1924 in over in europe obviously in chamonix and it's all this digital information and you can either read a one paragraph about those olympics or you can click on it and it continues all along all the way through to modern day to our Olympics that just happened in 2022. So tell us about this patron that just walked by. Oh, we do have a resident, we have a shop dog. His name is Morty. Uh, Morty is a little black and white lab border collie mix. And it's super cool though, because on one side in this little hallway that we're in, on one side is this all digital and all the information and photos and videos and everything. And then on the other side, behind a glass case are these amazing artifacts that tell the story of the Olympics. And it starts with the very, very first, in 1924, this was the, you know, when the athletes come into opening ceremonies now. Yeah. Stuff, that's what they wore in the 1924 Chamonix. Wow. Which is this really cool boiled wool um, Native American jacket, um, this was the first jacket. And those Olympic was. rings, and you see the Olympic rings right yes, here on the front. The, yes, and it has the, yep, the Olympic rings and with the, with like the U.S. flag on it. So it's pretty, it's pretty incredible that we have this, this first jacket. And then my favorite part about this whole thing, and then you go on, we have Billy Kidd's um, helmet. We have Chad Fleischer's helmet, who was, um, who was a local. But when you go and you look at the opening ceremonies uniform that Tess Johnson wore in Pyeongchang in 2018, it has a similar look to the same homage kind of to the 1924 Olympics. It's got a very Native American feel to it. So tell us about the box of frosted flakes up oh, here. Oh, that's like one of my favorite stories. So there's a box of frosted flakes that we have in our Olympic case. And the reason why we have them is Toby Dawson, who is a, uh, he was a pro mogul, break, break moguls freestyle yeah. skier. And um, he lived in Bale, and he was in the Torino Olympics. 
And uh, Toby has this amazing story. So he was a bronze medal. He won a bronze medal at the Olympics. Um, and so, of course, he made it onto the Frosted Flakes box. But Toby has a wild story. So when Toby was two years old, he was with his family in a market in uh, South Korea. And he got separated from his family and he ended up in an orphanage and they looked and looked and looked and they never found him. Wow. So Toby was adopted by two ski instructors who live in Vail and they adopted Toby and Toby moved to Vail and he just skied and skied and skied and skied and then Deb, his mom, would say, she would say, we have to stop for lunch and he was like, well, I can't stop. I mean, he was just bound and determined for some reason. So of course he became an Olympian and um, you know when the Olympics, when the Olympians, they tell their story, and Toby's family was watching the Olympics, and they said that is our son, and so he wow. reunited with his family. Wow! After those Olympics, and he feels very fortunate that he now has two families. What an amazing story! Yes. yes, everybody has a story, and we are here to tell those stories. Wow. So this has been fascinating to me as a Southerner who does not know as much about skiing. And so what is it that you want people to know about why they should come visit the Colorado Snow Sports Museum? So I think that the Snow Sports Museum, even if you're not a skier, it's fascinating history because it's fun, super inspiring stories. And also if you love World War II history or if you love the military we have a little bit of that. If you just love adventure, even if you're a fisherman or a hiker, you will find something that will connect you and why you love the state of Colorado and why it's such a cool place to be. And Colorado is all about adventure. So, and that's what the museum is really, we're just trying to inspire people um, to seek adventure. So it's really fun. Jen, thanks so much for showing me around the museum. And thank you so much for coming. That was Jennifer Mason, the executive director of the Colorado Snow Sports Museum in Vail. When we come back, a chance to hop on the Polar Express this holiday season. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The enormous T-Rex may have been a terror to all it encountered, but it was not invincible. It could be taken down by a 25-foot-long armor-clad plant eater, Ankylosaurus. The Ankylosaurus stood relatively low to the ground, a narrow beak helped it strip leaves from plants, but it was built like a tank, studded with spikes. Bones and other body parts fused together to make it stronger. Its most fearsome feature? The tail, where plates merged into a thick club. One swing could easily shatter the bones of a T-Rex. The Ankylosaur roamed slowly across Colorado 60-some million years ago, and its seven-ton body left deep footprints on Skyline Drive near Canyon City, heading west through ancient marshlands. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with the support of Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. A classic tale of a young boy's Christmas Eve voyage is coming to life in Golden. CPR's Eaton Lane takes us on the Polar Express train ride's journey to the North Pole. <laughs> it is! It is! It's the Polar Express! <laughs> that magical moment on the train platform of the Colorado Railroad Museum in Golden is only part of the experience. Like all of the Polar Express stations across North America, 
From Durango to Alberta, The Evening in Golden is built around the retelling of the story. Museum Executive Director Paul Hammond. There's a fair amount of leeway in how each heritage railroad that licenses into this can carry out the program. Hammond says other events keep the storytelling on board the train, but that's where Golden's Polar Express diverges. We start out with a whole separate musical theater production in our pavilion where we have a pre-show and then we, we sing and dance to the hot chocolate song. Of course, the serving of cocoa and cookies and then the, the retelling of the story, all those happen before you even get aboard the train in our case. For Sanchuri Tull, who for the third season is playing the conductor in this section, the performance is a special way to be part of the holidays. This production really brings the Port Express to life, and then you feel the magic when that train comes down the track. It's just wonderful. It gives me goosebumps even thinking about it. The Wilbanks Sass family really got into the Polar Express experience and wore their pajamas, as suggested. Mom Carey. I loved that that made the whole experience for us, to see his excitement wearing pajamas somewhere, because obviously I don't know that we've ever left the house in our pajamas for an event. Son Everett Sass wore his red PJs. He said he had a great time. What made it fun for you? We got to see the real Polar Express. Had you seen the movie or read the books before? I read the book and watched the movie. Scotty Schaefer, who plays Smokey the Brakeman, is appearing in the show for the fourth time. He describes the Polar Express event as part of the fandom of Christmas. I feel that it's more accessible because it's unlikely you're going to be able to, your grandmother is going to accept your invitation to go see the new Marvel movie, but she will definitely accept the invitation to come see the Polar Express, to see the magic of Christmas. But there's, there's a magic that happens and you can see, the proof of magic, I think, is when you can see it in other people's eyes, and in, in particular, the very young Lovers of the story will recognize that jingle bell. Visitors can even take one home as a keepsake. Everett wanted an ornament to remember his favorite character. Yeah, I, I wanted the, the conductor one. What made you want that one? Because I liked the conductor saying, all aboard. Everett's mom, Carrie Wilbanks, sums it up this way. My favorite part was when the train was pulling up and the steam is coming up and the music started to play. And my husband and I both started to get emotional because it was, it just felt really magical because he's at the age where I know that this could be an experience that he'll remember and seeing his eyes light up. All of his enthusiasm was just pouring out of him and his eyes were so wide and watching his expression. During a time when happiness can be hard to focus on, Scotty Schaefer finds special comfort in the magic of the Polar Express. To embrace the holiday, to embrace the mythology of Santa and the elves and the Polar Express, really, it, it sounds old-fashioned, it sounds even almost ancient to be comforted by mythology, but it's warm and it works and it's magic and, and it continues to be magic by sharing with others. The Polar Express departs three times nightly from the Golden location through December 23rd. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News.
Thanks for joining us today and to the team that keeps the Colorado Matters train on track. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.